On the 7th of June 2020, a statue of the philanthropist Edward Colston was torn off its plinth and thrown into Bristol Harbor. This was done by protesters drawing attention to how Colston's charitable works were built on slavery, racism, and empire. It is a vivid illustration of how history resonates into contemporary politics, both locally and globally. I'm David Blunt. This is the City Politics Podcast, a roundtable discussion of politics, international relations, and current affairs. Today, we'll give you the city view on empire and the liberal world order. Welcome to the City Politics Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about empire and the liberal world order. We're joined by Priyamvada Gopal. Priya is the professor of postcolonial studies at the University of Cambridge. It should come as no surprise that her work addresses colonial and postcolonial studies with related interests in the novel, South Asian literature, decolonization, critical race studies, and the politics and culture of empire and globalization. She also publishes occasionally in media and news outlets. She might be the academic that the Daily Mail loves to hate, which just makes me like her more. Welcome to the show, Priya. Thank you. Happy to be here. And we are also joined by Orr Rosenboim. Orr is a senior lecturer in modern history at City University of London. Her work focuses on international thought in the 20th century. She publishes on the idea of globalism and on the various theories of world order in British and American political thought. She's interested in geopolitics, Italian international thought, and imperial history. She's also working on a new book on the history of migration, world order, and food. Welcome to the show, Orr. Thank you. Now, this is a very exciting episode, so I think we're going to touch on some really uh, deep topics. But before we do that, we need to actually do a quick explanation of what it is we're talking about. So it's my segment because everyone knows I'm a bit of a dummy. So you got to explain it to me like I'm five, uh, where I ask a simple question. So Priya, I've got a question for you. What is empire? Empire is historically a formation uh, with a uh, a monarch or an emperor or an empress um, at its head um, that encompasses uh, a a large uh, amount of uh, land and um, communities within its borders. And it can be an expansive formation. So it can be a formation that starts small and then grows um, over time. So historically, you have multiple empires, you have the Roman Empire, you have the Ottoman Empire, you have the Mughal Empire, you have the Habsburg Empire. These are all formations uh, with an emperor or similar at its head and taking in different lands and uh, communities um, into its borders. But since 1492, we have, I think, a slightly different conception of empire also entering the fray. From 1492, um, the big European empires start to expand into the world at large, um, beginning, uh, of course, with the Portuguese and the Spanish, and then moving on to the French, the Dutch, uh, the Belgians, the the British. Um, And these are the great European empires, which are different in some ways from what comes before, in that they are empires made from the age of exploration. And you start to have empires which encompass lands that are not necessarily contiguous with them, that are not in in their uh, immediate neighborhood, that are uh, far away, that actually many people uh, in, in those empires would never have known or heard of each other. And those empires, I think, have to be connected in part with the rise of capitalism. Um, And the rise of capitalism, I think, puts into place a different conception of empire where land is still part of the equation, but you also have, um, in addition to to land and expanding borders, you also have the um, exploitation of resources and you have the creation of markets and you also have um, labor, including slave labor, as part of the empire's working. So we have slightly different understanding standings of empire, depending on whether you're talking about uh, the post-1492 or pre-1492. Excellent. That's really helpful. Uh, We're going to drill down onto these concepts of empire, but a really good primer. All right, Orr, I got a question for you. What do we mean when we talk about global orders? I think that the idea of global orders um, that we discuss in international relations 
um, has emerged mostly in the Second World War. And this encompasses the notion that when we think about politics, um, we actually try to imagine it on a world scale uh, and to try to understand the implications of uh, doing politics in a way that includes the whole world. And in that context, um, my understanding is that a lot of thinkers about politics try to imagine the, the various ways in which the whole world can be organized politically. So the different units that it could include, such as empires, but also obviously states, federations, regions, and the ways in which all of these units interact. So thinking about global order is not limited to thinking about the universal scale, but also about thinking um, through the relations between different uh, scales of political organization. Now, thinking about global orders is also thinking about, about hierarchy, because not all of these units always had the same weight to the same importance, and some of them were relegated to a lower, um, let's say, um, position within this order um, through patterns of domination and violence. So global order is not just about dissecting the map of the world into different bits and pieces, but it's also about imagining um, these uh, patterns of control and domination that link them together. Um, and this is essentially what I'm interested in, because thinking about these patterns tells us what are the potentials of different uh, units, if you want to use kind of an IR term, uh, in this uh, global order to change their position and to transform perhaps radically the existing way um, in which the, the world um, is organized. Okay, the stage is set. I think we have a good understanding of what empire is and what global order is. But now I'm going to pass you over to Constantine so he can ask you our 10 crystal ball questions. Constantine, take it away. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah, this is going to be a wild ride through 10 yes or no questions. So just answer yes or no. And then afterwards, we'll have all the time in the world to elaborate on that in much, much detail. Um, I would ask Priya to start with the five first questions and then, you know, all will follow. And then we'll switch the order around so that both of you have the benefit of the hindsight at some point in time. So let's start the crystal ball. Question number one, Priya, will future historians consider the end of empire the most significant event of the 20th century? No. Or? No. Question number two, is imperialism primarily driven by economic interest? Priya. Yes. Or? No. Question number three. Was the reform of the international system after World War II a genuine attempt to break with the past, Priya? No. Or? No. Question number four. 20 years from now, will there be political parties in the West that have become successful by demanding a rebirth of Western imperialism, Priya? No. Or? Yes, maybe. Question number five. Can any world order reconcile the tension between universalism and pluralism? Priya? Yes. Or? Yes. Uh, let's switch the order around uh, for the final five questions. Question number six. Or, 20 years from now, will we still have a decolonization movement? Yes or no? Yes. Priya? Yes. With the focus on Western empires and Western colonialism, have we overlooked the dangers of imperialism in other parts of the world? Or? Yes. Priya? Yes. Question number eight. Can empires be dismantled peacefully or? No. Priya? Yes. Question number nine. Is the liberal world order of today conceivable without a prior history of empire or? No. Priya? No. Question number 10. Is the role of the intellectual in shaping world orders underestimated or? No. Priya? No. Thank you so much. You have uh, some, some interesting points of uh, disagreement. I would like to start with the, the very first point of disagreement that you had. And I think it gets at the bottom of the topic, really, at the motives of, uh, uh, of empire and people who are uh, trying to set up and run an empire. And that is uh, the rationale behind it. You, 
uh, whether imperialism is primarily driven by economic interest. And Priya said, yes, it is. And Orr said, no, it's not. Why do you think that is, Priya? I mean, you know, it was a yes or no question that I, I decided to answer yes, in the sense that economic interests are very central. I don't think by any means they are the only uh, uh, interest, and I don't think that they uh, necessarily trump other interests. But I can't actually think of, um, again, the post-1492 imperial formations that are not, in some sense, driven by land, labor, markets, profits, and other things that would come reasonably under the purview of the economic. Now, there can be racial, religious, uh, you know, supremacist uh, drives as well. Um, there can be um, a, a hunger for power that is, uh, you know, exceeds the economic. But I don't, I can't think of any situation where the economic is entirely absent. And I'm thinking both about the traditional, uh, you know, 18th and 19th century European empires, and I'm thinking about the new empires that are coming into being, um, you know, under the under the rubric of what we now call, uh, you know, BRICS, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, uh, South Africa, the rising uh, southern powers, um, as it were. So I'm, I'm, I would be hard pressed to think of an example where economics was not playing any role. But looking at it from a purely economic, uh, self-interested perspective, where empire build is successful in, uh, in, in sort of squeezing economic surplus out of their empires, or did they fail? I think they were very largely successful. Um, you know, things change. Uh, when you look at empires over a 500-year span, uh, things don't remain static. But um, for instance, if you had asked me, did the West unambiguously benefit economically from the European imperial project? The answer is yes, it, it unambiguously profited. And, and, and the, its present affluence and its present, uh, I guess, predominance is still um, explicable by, by, that, by that profiting, by that benefiting. Okay, thanks. And uh, or why did you fall on the, the no side of that question? And yes, it is a continuum, but you said, you know, you, you fell to the other side of the, the, the middle of that continuum. Why did you say no? Uh, it's not so, necessarily driven by economic interest primarily. Yes, so I suppose I'm a bit, perhaps looking at it from a very particular uh, perspective, which is uh, Italian imperialism, uh, something I've been uh, exploring uh, a little in recent times. And I suppose my main objection is not that economics was unimportant, but that notions of prestige and status played a really important role in shaping the European uh, surge of, of empire. And I think that uh, in cases, in many cases, economic arguments were sidelined, uh, and and some powers like, well, or if you want to say powers or mid-level powers like Italy, have actually decided to act against what was in their economic benefit to obtain empire that seemed to be the actual mark of prestige in international relations. So this, I think, reflects a situation um, in which some powers have already uh, gained so much profit from empire as Priya highlighted, that other powers were ready to um, use uh, really indescribable violence uh, to gain a similar position, even when economic arguments were not really relevant. So in a way, for example, Italy's conquest of Libya since before the First World War represents a case in which um, economic losses were mitigated and absorbed in order to become an imperial power and uh, sort of to obtain this mark of acceptance and recognition. Uh, and this is something that I think often is, is disregarded, especially when, economic, when imperial enterprises fails um, so th there was no gain, there was no success in the sense Italy was not necessarily able to dominate Libya for many, many years, but the impact for Libya was disastrous nonetheless. So the violence, the deportations, uh, all the marks of imperial disasters were there, uh, but there was no, at the time, economic gain. So these episodes were not really regarded um, by later 
scholars or even the general public as examples of empire. Um, so this led me to think that actually we should investigate the moments in which imperial violence ex explodes, even when there is no kind of clear capitalist and, and commercial uh, benefits uh, in, the, in the story. Those are both really interesting observations on the nature of empire. And sort of one of the things that I want to build on uh, sort of links both. So my th thoughts on empire still have sort of a big tinge of Marxism-Leninism. And, you know, just to put my cards on the table, the idea that, you know, empire follows from capitalist expansion makes a degree of sense to me. But there are these alternative cases, like you've been talking about, or where there doesn't seem to be a benefit from empire. And it's paralleled with what I would say is the strange afterlife of empire. You know, if Britain is a wonderful example of this, uh, where the legacy of empire still seems to be very much ingrained in our institutions, in our culture, in the way that our public spaces are shaped. And yet there's no economic architecture supporting it. So how does it stay up? Or is it just sort of a free floating castle that so long as we believe in it, it remains intact? I was wondering if uh, either of you had thoughts on the legacy of imperial ideology after empire disappears. One of the most fascinating things about the legacy of empire for me is actually the omission of empire and the way in which the very fundamental contribution of imperial exploitation um, to the formation of the countries that we recognize today as you know, forerunning in economic and, and cultural um, aspects um, has been completely ignored. So, but just like now I'm based in Italy and so I see it all around, but the, uh, the ways in which um, the exploitation of labor and the uh, kind of cultural importation of uh, a black culture, uh, of black um, music and um, artifacts from the colonies has permeated into um, Italian heritage and culture without any recognition of that. Um, I think is, is a fascinating aspect of a country that is not typically recognized for its imperial legacy so much. So obviously in other places like in London, I think it is all around and many people choose to not see it, but that's perhaps you know, what we should highlight. It's slightly debatable whether the base disappears. I mean, empires, the, again, I'm talking about the post-1492 European empires, uh, you know, emerges and part of what it does is leave behind a world order structured by capitalism. So the formal empires might disappear in the sense of, you know, Britain does not rule India, it does not rule Nigeria, uh, Italy does not rule Ethiopia. So, you know, formally these are not empires, but the economic structure has been left behind. So in that sense, there is a very big question mark as to whether in some sense empire has receded. It has, it has changed form. It has, it, has, it has put into place certain structures that are still operative. Um, and with those structures, uh, you know, the, the other aspects of empire, racial ideologies, national ideologies, uh, prestige, you know, hierarchies, those are all also still there. And they are not, I don't think they can be divorced um, entirely from the operations um, of capital, although this is a, a you know, fast changing scenario. One thing I did want to say in response to Orr's point, which is, which I you know which I take um, that that not all empires had a you know clearly uh, definable, understandable, logical imperial uh, economic motive. I'm not sure that I would necessarily always only talk about national empires. So you know the British Empire, the French Empire, the Dutch Empire. For me, the West which you know, emerges as a formation post-1492 is an imperial formation. Um, and it's not running along national lines. So it, it doesn't have to be the case that Italy directly benefits. Belgium had an empire, which was actually a private empire. It was, it was Leopold's empire. It, it didn't actually belong to the nation. He benefited in a way that, let us say, you know, ordinary Belgians didn't you know, necessarily benefit. So for me, I think the question of, of 
economics is a complicated one. It's not, it does not run along national lines and it doesn't necessarily recede uh, with the formal end of, of rule by X or Y nation. And so it doesn't surprise me that the, the, the racial apparatus, the cultural apparatus of empire um, is still very much there uh, in, in, in these former colonial nations. Now, let me uh, uh, pick that up and uh, sort of combine that with another question that we had, and that was the question about the, the dangers of imperialism in other parts of the world. And you both said, yeah, we've looked at Western empires and Western colonialism a lot, and we've maybe overlooked dangers of imperialism uh, elsewhere. Uh, and I assume um, you, you, we both have Russian imperialism in mind. Uh, I'm not sure if, uh, if that's what you did have in mind, but that's what I had in mind when I was thinking of this um, question. Um, so talking about economic interest and, 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 and motives and consequences and whether the economic sort of stay in place once uh, uh, sort of imperialism is, is, is overcome, uh, uh, at least in its sort of the way in which it is politically and economically organized. Um, now, I, I realize there's lots of people who do sort of uh, a distant uh, psychoanalysis of Vladimir Putin these days, uh, so I don't want to sort of be, devolve into that sort of thing, but uh, uh, thinking about the motives behind imperialism, what is the motive behind Russian imperialism? Is it even correct to call it imperialism? And is it comparable to what we've said about sort of the history of Western imperialism uh, so far in this conversation? Priya? I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert on, on Russia, um, and I'm by no means um, an expert on the, on the current war. But what I can say is that, that to my eye, as a scholar, a, a cultural scholar, really, of, of colonialism, we are seeing, in a sense, uh, a fight, as we often saw in, in the 19th century uh, in, in Africa, for instance, a fight within the great powers of the present, uh, we are seeing a fight in a sense between capitalist powers. Um, Russia is one of the BRICs, one of the rising uh, capitalist powers. Um, I, I would say it's, it's, it's quite already preeminent um, in that sense. So when a highly militarized capitalist power annexes or conquers land that is contiguous to it, in a way you see two imperial formations at stake. You see the older kind of Tsarist model, um, you know, what I spoke about in terms of the, the older uh, contiguous empires of conquest. So you see that, you see quite an explicit reference in Putin's own uh, talk about recovering kind of Russian greatness and the, and the scope of the Russian empire as it once was. Uh, so a kind of Tsarism uh, come back to life. Uh, but you also see the assertion, the militarized assertion of a capitalist economic power. Um, so actually, I, I see what is happening now in, uh, in Russia, Ukraine, uh, as actually an interesting confluence of an older model of empire and a, and a kind of present day militarism of the sort that we have seen the United States being um, involved in as well, you know, the military conflict abroad, annexation, occupation. Uh, these are things that the, that the great capitalist powers do. Um, and the established capitalist powers do that, but increasingly we are going to see uh, in not just Russia, but India, China, and Brazil uh, be involved in, in this kind of, um, uh, of conquest and expansion as well. So I suppose my answer to this question reflected my um, kind of thinking about conceptions of what is legitimate and what is not legitimate from our own perspective, you know, in the West, essentially. Um, and I was thinking that you know, again, like Priya, I'm not an expert in Russian empire, Russian politics, or the current situation, but there has been, I think, a lot of ignorance in the West about the practices of empire in other parts of the world. And this is part of the problem. So if we are kind of, we have achieved perhaps some success in decolonizing our knowledge of the West, this has not necessarily been true of other parts of the world where there has been, you know, we can say, you know, South-South or East-East colonialism. Um, and, and this is really the source of uh, a lot of, I think, political difficulties and misunderstandings. And it's 
And it's enough to think of um, positions like we've seen during this current crisis, even by John Mershana most famously, um, that argue in a sense that some form of imperial practices through the concept of the sphere of influence and so on are permissible uh, in non-Western areas, whereas I think you would struggle to make such claims about um, ex-Western empires. So to suggest that some parts of you know, the world, since they used to be colonies of the West, are now still dependent on the West and should expect to be invaded at any time because that's the way it is. Um, so I, I doubt that he could make such claims that as he had made about um, Eastern Europe. Um, so in that sense, I think there is really a gap of information that undermines our possibility to really comprehend empire as a concept because we have much more information and knowledge about it um, in some areas of the world in comparison to others. And this would be perhaps the next step to try to combine these uh, experiences and these narratives into something that is more coherent and, well, not maybe coherent, but maybe more multi-layered and diverse notion of empire that is not just based on the Western and as Priya justly said, the 1492 um, sort of uh, trajectory, let's say, um, but, uh, there is a lot to, to develop there still. Can I just add to that one other thing? Um, one of the legacies of the post-1492 project in places like India and slightly differently in uh, China, which was not you know, formally a, a colony, but uh, clearly uh, th there were elements of Western imperialism that interacted with, um, with China, in addition to an economic structure, it has left behind ideological and political afterlives. And so that former colonies are now able to act like or their former rulers once did. Um, and you can see this quite clearly, uh, uh, certainly in the case of India, but, but many other former colonies where the apparatus, the political apparatus, the state apparatus, left behind by colonialism remains untouched. I mean, there is very little that the Indian state has done to change the, uh, the colonial state. So the, the, the Raj may have left in the sense that, you know, there was a transfer of power, uh, but the state apparatus uh, has not been changed. And therefore the state apparatus can continue to act in colonial ways. And both India and China uh, have very serious questions to answer in relation to populations um, formally within their boundaries who are uh, you know, treated in ways that really raise very sharp questions about the extent to which colonial tactics have not left uh, these regions and, and the ways in which colonial tactics have reproduced themselves. So there is also that added dimension this is interesting because I was thinking you were going to go off in a in a in a slightly different direction, and then I, I, your point is very important about the, the the formalized bureaucratic structures. But then there's another legacy of empire that I find interesting, and um, that is the experience of empire and the resentment that it breeds might have very very different consequences. It might lead to a better understanding of the the pitfalls of empire and you know active efforts to prevent this uh, in the future. So in in a sense, it would lead to some sort of on global scale to some form of sort of humanitarian improvement, but resentment, and this is what I was thinking of in the case of China, but it also applies to Germany and to Japan, uh, their resentment of not being having the place in the sun, their resentment of being subjected to sort of imperial or at least partially imperial, proto-imperial domination in the case of Japan, in the case of Germany, in the case of China, has led not to sort of a more benign outlook on uh, uh, empire and sort of the attempt to sort of, well, let's not even touch this thing, but it has led to uh, an imperialism of its own in a sense, or at least a proto-imperialism, uh, you know, to don't want to sort of make too grandiose comparisons right now. So is that the reason for why empires and imperialism in general cannot really be easily dismantled peacefully? Or is it part of the reason? I mean, I answered that question, yes, because I, although I agree with Fanon that decolonization is a violent phenomenon. 
in as much as it requires the overthrow of a prevailing order. Um, I understand that, that in some absolute sense, it is violent. However, I think I still am attached, possibly in a naive way, to the, the idea that change can occur without necessarily inflicting violence of the sort in a narrow sense of, you know, in the, in the sense of bloodshed, you know, bombings, uh, killings, war, you know, that sort of thing. This may be a kind of uh, unfortunate middle-class squeamishness on my part. I want to be, you know, upfront about that. Um, but I think because I'm an intellectual and I'm an intellectual, you know, talking about these ideas, I still want to keep a place for change happening, not without action, um, you know, certainly, you know, civil disobedience, boycott, uh, sanctions, all of that, you know, are very, very costly, difficult actions. Um, I want to hold on to the idea that it can happen without bloodshed, but I have to say that I, I have a question mark around my own idea um, that that is possible. But I, I suppose I'm just being upfront about the fact that I, I continue to have an investment in the idea of nonviolent, uh, uh, a deep transformation. Let's say um, I don't consider myself a violent person, so I actually share Priya's hope, I suppose, that um, change could be enacted in non-violent means, but I suppose, you know, it's also through my own biography and, and childhood and so on um, in, in Israel. Uh, I, I find it difficult to be actually optimistic about uh, non-violent uh, transition from empire. I find it difficult to see why a powerful hegemon would give up power without an actual um, kind of decisive act of uh, opposition. And I see this position that I kind of hold against my will in a way as, um, as a sense of failure uh, so I don't actually celebrate it, but it just seems to me um, an unfortunate um, legacy of empire in a way that the, the structure of um, domination is so deeply embedded in social and political life that it is very difficult to uproot it um, without um, kind of a, a, a decisive act, which seems to be um, violence. Um, but I'm, I'm very happy to be um, kind of proven wrong. I think that in the past, there are very few examples of a peaceful end of empire. And in, in the present, the, the situations in which domination still exists seem to be somehow internationally accepted or tolerated in a way that only an extreme act can end them. Can I just add one, one thing to that, which is, you know, I take the point that there are these powerful hegemons um, that, that are, by the way, quite happy to use violence to maintain their position. One slight question I have is also about strategy, which is these are hegemons and states that are armed to the teeth. And so can violence against them actually work? So let us even say, if you set aside the, the moral question of violence, you know, there have been, for instance, armed resistance to the Indian state, you know, in the form of, of guerrilla warfare in, in the forests. I can't see that such, you know, violence, however, you know, noble its aims, um, however, uh, you know, it, it might have given up on, on peaceful change. I don't, I don't know that it can win against the Indian state um, and, and ditto the Israeli state, uh, which, you know, is armed in itself and armed, has armed powers supporting it. So there is also the question of violence as strategy. And I, I take your point that, that the end of empires have never been entirely peaceful. However, there have been other what you call decisive action. Um, there have been, you know, civil disobedience, non-cooperation, strikes, uh, you know, resistance of different kinds that, that, you know, are decisive but not necessarily violent. 
certainly South Africa comes to mind. Now, South Africa is not a decolonized entity by any means, but nonetheless, a particularly egregious racial formation came to a formal end. And it's not that nonviolence was the entirety of the story, it wasn't, but it's not as though the answer <clears throat> that that happened because violence uh, you know, was successful. So, I mean, I, I'm not sure that either side, nonviolence or violence has established uh, credentials as the way to bring empires or hegemons to an end. Yeah, I think South Africa is a really interesting case. Uh, I used it in my book. I was looking at anti-apartheid organizations as an example of peaceful uh, or civil disobedience to overturn an obviously unjust regime. One of the interesting things that I found is that it was very difficult to analytically separate nonviolent and violent forms of resistance, right? Because, you know, the yeah, MK, yeah. which was the armed wing of the African National Congress, was very much a threat on the mind of the apartheid government, even if they weren't acting, they were sort of the, the, the threat in being was enough to bring people to the table. So trying to decouple them was really a puzzle that I basically said you can't uh, at the end of the day. That's a but, fair point, yeah. But it does go to sort of, you know, what was the more decisive impact on dismantling apartheid? Was it MK or was it the more peaceful actions? And obviously the peaceful actions captured the sympathy of the world put enormous moral pressure on the South African government and delegitimized it in a pretty profound way. So it's trying to pull them apart is such an interesting task when we're thinking about uh, decolonization, which I guess leads to sort of one of, those, one of the questions that you both agreed on, which was the decolonization movement. And that in 20 years, you know, will we still be thinking about it? And I think we've probably talked a bit over the past few minutes about why there might still be a decolonization movement. But I think it might be interesting to think a little bit about what we mean by decolonization, because, you know, we can think about the formal end of empire, whether it's France pulling out of Algeria or Britain from Hong Kong. Uh, but this seems to just be a formal representation of the end of empire. What does actual decolonization look like? Uh, or would you like to start on that? So obviously Priya is the expert, but I'll um, throw in my thoughts. Before that, I actually wanted to thank Priya. I, I appreciate this kind of optimism that that is not often heard. So it's it's good. I like to play the kind of devil's advocate sometimes on on violence. But um, and you may well be right. You may well be right. No, well, I prefer to be wrong. Let's say that for me, or at least for the the thinkers that I've looked at in. Uh, in my work, I suppose decolonization mostly meant um, the kind of transition to nationhood. That was their understanding of a political change. But from my perspective, I think that they missed out the much lengthier and more difficult transition that followed that, which was essentially breaking down all the system of hierarchy, domination, and exploitation that was so deeply entrenched in many societies, not only in the colonies, but also obviously in the metropole or in the kind of colonial center. And so these, you can even say mindsets, uh, were so difficult to bring to an end that in the end, many of the thinkers that I've been uh, looking at who define themselves as liberal internationalists or um, kind of very critical towards empire, none of them uh, supported imperial domination. They replicated many of the tropes that were already present in the imperial uh, era or kind of the imperial political uh, structure. And they were unable to see that many of their ideas that they thought were liberating and radical were in fact uh, not. Um, and, and looked at from a different perspective, from the perspective of the, of the colonized and those who were left uh, outside the realm of political agency, let's say. These visions that they had of a, of a post-colonial world, the visions of the Western thinkers, um, were uh, really not very attractive at all because they replicated typically the exclusion of many voices and many practices from what was considered politically legitimate in, in the modern world order. So in a sense, decolonizing, as we, we all try to do in the universities as well, is more work of conceptual practices than, than merely you know, changing 
forms of government, which can be much easier. You know, you, you bring in a new constitution, set up a parliament, and you're ready to go. But in fact, you know, the, the more conceptual limits that are set by empire, I think, are very much still in place in many places of the world. And for that reason, I was not uh, very hesitant to um, predict that in two decades, we will still see many of these practices around. And so the, the challenges of decolonization will not end so quickly. Um, well, especially because, as we've just said, in some parts of the world, um, you know, imperial practices are still active politically. It's not just a thing of the past. And so there will be still a lot to decolonize, I think, in many decades to come. Now, we've already seen a, a counter movement to, um, to decolonization efforts in Western democracies. People that, you know, say, oh, this is going too far and, you know, we need to be proud of our history or at least we need to put it in context. And, uh, and various counter arguments have been made against uh, decolonization broadly uh, understood. Uh, now, the question is, where is this? going to go in the future? Uh, is this going to um, lead uh, maybe even to demands for a rebirth of imperialist practice by the West? And that would be uh, a, a very extreme uh, reaction to that. And uh, I asked both of you whether in 20 years from now there will be political parties in the West that have become successful by demanding a rebirth of Western imperialism. So this would be a a reaction against decolonization, maybe to some extent, but also, um, again, a, a reference to the prior history of imperialism that is more extreme than what we're seeing right now. Um, uh, and uh, or you said, yeah, um, and you said maybe, uh, but you said, yeah, this is in the realm of possibility. Why do you think that is? Well, I suppose, again, I'm kind of looking at my position now in, in Italy from this perspective. There has been a lot of uh, discussions on you know, Italy's place in the world, place in Europe, etc. Uh, if, if you look back a few years um, when there was an European intervention in Libya, there was still a lot of uh, pushback in Italy against interventions by France. Although you know the, none of them are entitled to any special relations with Libya, there's still a consideration that there is something about Libya that is Italian. So in a way, these kind of arguments, I think, are not completely absent from any uh, political debate. And there hasn't been any official kind of turn away from empire in a form of foreign uh, influence. So when we still look at practices of aid, interventions, et cetera, um, we still see the shadow of empire. And in that sense, I think that it is you know, maybe not probable that there will be some pro-imperial party, but it's also, it also can't be formally excluded uh, because it's not beyond you know, the, the pale, um, not really. Priya, you said no, this is not going to happen. Was it a very strong no, or was it a no that was sort of next to the center of gravity on the continuum? No, I said that partly because we have those now. I mean, you know, we have the resurgence uh, in the United States, uh, in including in Britain, of political forces that are very happy with the idea of, say, um, you know, the United America first. So America, the leader, America, in a sense, running the world. Uh, you have ideas that, you know, Britain will re post-Brexit regain its preeminence and reconnect with the Commonwealth. So in a sense, my, my no was that we don't actually have to wait 20 years. I mean, those forces are uh, still very much around. 20 years, I mean, at least at my age now, I realize is not a very long time at all. It's, it's you know, it's tomorrow. Um, I don't think things will change dramatically. I think the same forces talking about, you know, the, the resurgence of the West and the need for the West to assert itself are here today and they will be there uh, tomorrow. Um, but I think in, in as much as we talk about a shift, this is when we need to pay attention to the empires we are not paying attention to. Uh, the empires that are, for one thing, where the fulcrum, and we come back to economics here, where economic power is, is moving slowly, very slowly, away from the metropolitan West southwards, and the shots will be called, you know, in that sense, by, 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 by who ha you know, whoever has that economic power. 
And at that point, I think it would be very remiss not to think about the empires that may be staking their claim 20 years from now, not in terms of we need to recover our past glory, but it's our turn now. Um, and that to me would be precisely Russia, China, India, Brazil, and you know others. Um, I think we have to, we, it's not that there won't be pro-imperialist forces 20 years from now, but whether those are going to be Western forces or just Western forces, I'm not sure. I, I think we should be paying much more attention uh, to the, you know, the emergence of, of colonialism elsewhere. One of the things that we've touched on is so the durability of imperial formations in world politics, right? And I think this is brings up a point that when we speak about revolutionary potential that gets overlooked, uh, people often think that it's you know, overthrow a state you know, Tsarist Russia becomes the Soviet Union, the revolution's complete. But the endurance of these international systems of domination uh, make the state look, you know, less robust by comparison. These seem incredibly difficult to overturn. You know, I have in my mind, you know, when I was reading uh, sort of radical black power writers in America in the 1960s and 70s, who conceived of racism as being an international phenomenon. You know, they very much explicitly link it with the struggle against Portuguese colonialism, against apartheid, uh, the decolonization struggle across the world. And this often gets overlooked when we think about emancipatory politics. It's often highly nationalized or localized. We seem to not be able to build, a, to use the Gramscian term, I guess, a, a counter hegemony at the global level. Uh, why is that such a challenge? I guess is a question that's come to my mind. You mean a, a, a counter hegemony to... To empire. To empire. Or, or to racism or to any of the sort of assorted uh, components of the imperial project. Well, I guess I come back to economics here, which is, you know, without for one moment disagreeing that, you know, racism, supremacism, all of these things are very durable and powerful parts of, of empire. You cannot fight these fights simply on the cultural level. So you, you know, you, we have generated over the last, you know, two three hundred years a vast body of of anti-colonial thought, anti-racist thought. And sometimes we look back and we kind of look at each other, you know, wide-eyed and say, you know, how come these brilliant ideas are not hegemonic? But hegemonies are also about power, and it's about economics and control of the state and control of uh, ideological state apparatuses and control of uh, education, the media, you know. So do these ideas have money behind them? Do they have structures helping them? Do they have, you know, facilitation? And the answer is no. So when you talk in very broad terms of, you know, progressive forces or the left, wondering why its ideas are, you know, haven't become, you know, powerfully hegemonic. Well, two things to say. One, let us give some acknowledgement that certain things are not okay now in the way they were 100 years ago. And I'm not being kind of naively Whiggish here, but I think we shouldn't also underestimate uh, the ways in which the fight against racism has had certain victories and certain things, e.g., formal apartheid are not acceptable. Okay, and, and today they may seem obvious, but it took a long time to make those ideas not acceptable. Formal colonialism is also by and large, uh, you know, there's a question mark around it. So there, there have been successes relative to power, but then, you know, how can you have a counter hegemony without having the, you know, the, the state of the state apparatuses, the media, the platforms, the, the, the power, the levers of state, which would, help create a counter hegemony. I just, I, I just don't see how that, you know, can even be possible. So, I mean, I suppose I'm, I agree with Priya that there is, you know, more optimism and more um, to celebrate in a way than, than we somehow acknowledge. I suppose many of these kind of celebrations or recognitions have been made on a national level. So in a sense, many of the fights were Kind of concluded or seemed to relate to a specific uh, national context, while in fact they were not, they were part of a transnational or international movement that was somehow kind of obscured or ignored mostly because, well, I think 
partially because of the social and cultural uh, ways in which these stories were narrated. Um, and recently there's been some great um, books about the international dimension of these radical fights. And I'm thinking obviously of the work of Keisha Blaine and others who've really shown how it's all connected. And maybe this is something that we should you know, carry on as uh, scholars or writers to try to show how many of uh, the efforts to change the world were uh, pushed forward by people who looked beyond their national community for inspiration and collaborated across. And maybe that could also set some kind of a, a example or um, um, inspiration for people who try to do similar things now. Um, and obviously, I think that people today are much more aware of the global dimension of these fights, but not always of the, the ways in which the global sphere had already played a role in past fights. So this is something that historians can still transform and hopefully um, arm current uh, uh, trans, um, transnational uh, radical change makers uh, with examples and um, you know, to show that it's a long-term trajectory. The, both of your responses put me in mind of, of a quote uh, that's actually from your book or, Practical men in positions of power can always demonstrate the impracticability of idealistic proposals by the simple device of making sure that these are never tried, uh, from Barbara Wooten. And I think that that has a lot behind it, right? If you don't have power, and if you don't have organization, then you're always going to be checked by those who have power and who control institutions. Uh, though that's not reason to despair, it's a reason to, to organize, I would say. Um, Constantine, do you want to jump in? Yeah, it, it made me think of the, the rhetoric of, uh, uh, of reaction, uh, a book by uh, Albert Hirschman, who, uh, who sort of wrote about uh, how you know, people in power actually are people who want to prevent change from taking place, uh, argue uh, in order to either conceal their interests or in order to actually convince people that change is not desirable. And he said um, there's the argument that you know, there, there's a perversity in our efforts to change things because it's going to lead to uh, results that are actually the opposite of what we wanted to, uh, that what we intended. And um, there's uh, sort of, it's, it's impossible. Um, let's see, there's the impossibility uh, uh, of, of change. And then there's the jeopardy argument. Uh, whatever we're doing now will put in jeopardy the things that we have already uh, accomplished. Um, do you recognize any of these patterns of argumentation in those people that try to uh, resist sort of the, the dismantling of uh, injustice and, 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 and domination? What do they say? What do people that, you know, that, that imaginary party or that in 20 years is going to ask for a sort of a rebirth of Western imperialism? Um, you know, how could they, how would they sort of, before they get to that position, how would they sort of, how would they demand um, that um, they, 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 we should have an end to decolonization right now? I suppose maybe I'll, I want to go back to your first question and to try to think about what is really the use for uh, visions you know, and, and all these kind of idealisms that are ridiculed in thinking about world order, which, I mean, this is really the core of my, of my work in a way, because many of the thinkers that I look at, including Barbara Wooten that David cited, were really ridiculed at the time and were not given any political importance against these great powers uh, that were going around them of you know, political realism, empire, the state, various things that they tried to challenge. Um, and I suppose you know, I have this ambivalent view of that. On the one side, it seems that, you know, that by elaborating really far-fetched visions, they distance themselves from more realistic accomplishments that they could have perhaps achieved because many of those visions were not enacted at all. Um, on the other side, I suppose that I find it inspiring to see that the, there is always um, a wider scale of possibilities uh, that is kind of pushed forward by these visions than what we seem to think is actually viable and feasible now. So by by extending our imagination, I suppose that these visionaries sought to kind of uh, produce alternative realities as they move forward rather than just succumb to what is already there. 
so I actually, I don't necessarily like to read a lot of the more kind of right-wing imperialist and uh, so kind of anti-liberal thinkers uh, that those who may, you know, uh, form those parties in, in 20 years time to sustain empire, because I, I find it sometimes, well, politically depressing. I think that we need these uh, kind of liberal visionaries to kind of open up alternatives that are not always good, but at least they have you know, some positive intentions behind them. I hope that's kind of, that makes some sense, but I, I suppose what I want to say is that you know, we need to inject our political discourse with alternatives and not just to kind of pursue the same patterns that have been there for such a long time. Now, I would sort of put a question to Priya. When you were writing about uh, anti-colonial resistance in India, was there a similar sort of debate over practicality and idealism that developed among Indian anti-imperial thinkers and activists? Well, I didn't, I didn't write about India um, in great detail, um, but one of the things I did do was to not return to the familiar story of Gandhi and nonviolence. Um, and I looked, um, for instance, at labor organizing, at peasant organizing, resistance that involved you know, strikes, as you yourself said a little while back, organizing uh, against capital, for instance. Um, and there were certainly more differences in the Indian anti-colonial picture than is often understood with the kind of singular emphasis on Gandhi. You know, there were people, even within Gandhi's wider Congress formation, who had quite powerful disagreements on uh, you know, what, what anti-colonialism should entail, what the future of the new nation should look like. But we also know, as in fact, as you were saying in relation to South Africa, that there were also people, most famously uh, Subhash Chandra Bose, but also others who were willing to use violence, who believed that, you know, a military resistance uh, was the only way out. Um, so it was a much more complicated picture than the singular emphasis on a particular kind of nonviolent Gandhism leads us to believe. Um, and there were people who were arguing, and I think the most interesting figure not talked about in relation to the Indian picture is the Dalit leader B.R. Ambedkar. Because Ambedkar, uh, and I'm working on him right now uh, in relation to decolonization, really is one of the first uh, most important voices to raise the alarm about what this particular trajectory of decolonization was going to lead to. And he says quite early on in, in, in the early 1940s when the Quit India movement is about to kick off, he says, this is just a transfer of power. This is a very cynical game being played where the white man will hand over power to the Brahminical uh, Hindu order in India. And this is so in a sense, not decolonization. This is, and he keeps saying this is a transfer of power. And, in fact, that is the case, that by and large, it was a transfer of power. It came alongside, you know, important reforms, constitutional reforms, and, and so on. Um, but the fact that certain things were not attended to before that transfer of power, including robust safeguards for minorities, including, uh, you know, and, and, and Dalits, uh, those we now see the consequences of that in India rapidly becoming um, uh, uh, what it, you know, is a, a Hindu nation, uh, the, the very thing that, you know, pe people like him warned against. So yeah, there was a difference between kind of more idealistic um, understandings of a, of, a of a radically changed social and political order in India and something that was just a much more uh, narrow and pragmatic transfer of power. Um, and I saw it, I, it was there. And I think that in the Indian context, quite apart from uh, people who are kind of communists, leftists, um, advocates of military violence, I think we also need to be thinking about the very profound caste questions raised about the nature of the incoming uh, new independent state. And with great regret, we have to bring this episode to a close, but I get the feeling that this topic is going to burn hot for many years to come. I'd like to thank our guests. 
If you haven't had a chance, you need to read Priyamvada Gopal's stellar history, Insurgent Empire, Anti-Colonial Resistance and British Descent, from Verso. And while you're at it, read Orr Rosenboim's Emergence of Globalism, Visions of the World Order in Britain and the United States, 1939-1950, to from Princeton University Press. As well as her chapter, A Plan for Plenty, The International Thought of Barbara Wooten, and Women's International Thought, A New History, from Cambridge University Press. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at the City Politics Podcast, at Convos, and of course, me, at G.D. Blunt. This has been the City Politics Podcast, the official podcast of the Department of International Politics at City, University of London. A big thanks to our producer, Atina Dimitrova, and to Cambio for the music. Oh, goddamn, our guests make me feel like a real lazy sack of podcast excellence. Take care, everyone. <laughs>